Hello, and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt, and I'm an autodidact. My name's Huddo, and I too am an autodidact. Welcome, Huddo. It's been a while, Matt. It has been a while. I don't know why you've been so slack in not organising these podcasts, Huddo. It's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, I mean, yes, there's been a lot of flip-flops, but um, <laughs> we have both moved residents, and we have now set up Podcasting Central, so there's been a lot going on. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, and a sl- tiny little bit of slackness uh, in, the, uh, in there on my part as well. Um, but I'm back and raring to go. So I want to start today, Hutto, by giving you a question without notice. But it's, it's not unanswerable, so oh, uh, you don't have to panic. I wanted to ask you, who the hell are we? Why are we doing this podcast and what's it all about? Right, well, we're a couple of good mates and we like talking about this stuff, which we do online and offline. Um, We've got possibly slightly different agendas. Um, I'm trying to get some messages of wisdom out to the world. Yes. Um, I haven't got a clue why you do this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll I'll tell you when you're finished. Right, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Um, And this is one method for doing so. I write books, I do podcasting, I sometimes make presentations and stuff like that about it, and I'm still trying to solve all the problems of the world as part of that. Yep. Which I enjoy doing. Yes, and it... And it's, it's kind of what you do anyway in your own time, so um, exactly. I, I sometimes I wonder whether we should have called this podcast Fly on the Wall, because basically the sort of conversations we have in this podcast are the conversations that we tend to have anyway. They are. Um, the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I found us having these conversations a couple of times a week. I was really enjoying them, Yeah. and uh, I thought, hell... Why not uh, press record? <laughs> Absolutely, and, and that I agree with that. And you did, you did say that to me, which yeah. is why we started out. Yeah, and the other and, and the other couple of reasons I um, I like to do this is because it helps put rigor and structure around my learning. So I read the book Sapiens about ten years ago, yeah, and I got a lot out of it. But I've got more out of it this time because I do the notes uh, by choice. So I give you a hard time for not doing the notes, but I do them by choice because it gives me a chance to go over material and get it more solid in my yeah. head. Because I tend to learn things very quickly and then forget them very quickly. Yes. Um, and this is helping things sink into my pea brain. Yeah. Um, so that's so that's a little bit of an introduction, which will because I know the, the reason I asked is because I noticed that we were just launching straight into the podcast every week, and I thought people probably won't know what the heck we're trying to do. I think it's something we need to. And we did say some of this in our original introduction. We did, but, but who listens the, to that? No, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so today um, we're talking about chapter nineteen in. Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, Mm -hmm. and we nearly finished the book, Um, but today the the chapter's entitled And They Lived Happily Ever After, and it's essentially asking the question, okay, we know all these things, we know what's happened in history, and in a sense it's asking, what's the point? Are we making ourselves happier by all this uh, progress, in inverted commas? And if not, is happiness the goal anyway? So uh, it's a topic dear to my heart because I I have happiness fairly high on my list of things that I want to be, um, as shallow as I am. And I have been trying to get you off that for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So, So let's begin. So the last 500 years have produced an astonishing amount of human progress. I think you'd agree with that. Indeed. So the Earth has been united into a single ecological and historical 
entity. Mm-hmm. Um, the economy has grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average middle, middle class Westerner today enjoys luxuries greater than used to be enjoyed by kings and queens. Indeed, and it's the same for middle class Chinese, or it's not just Westerners. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Science and industry have given uh, humans breathtaking power and, as we've discussed in a previous chapter, practically limitless energy, Mm etc, etc, etc. But are we happier, Hutto? Well, yes. Um, Happier than what? Uh, My simple answer to this one is always, I enjoy living in a world where you've got anaesthetic for dentists. (laughs) Yeah, you, you always mention that example. I do, and because... Whether or not I'm happier, I'm a downside less miserable as a result of that. <laughs> it's funny, my mum was born in 1938, she's passed away now, and when she, when she got toothache as a kid, they still used to tie a string to the door handle, wrap it around your tooth, right. and slam the door, yeah. and that would extract your tooth. Yeah. So you don't need anaesthetic cutter, you can just do that. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you do need a door in a house, admittedly. <laughs> um... So has the world become a better place to live in over the course of the last 70,000 years since the cognitive revolution? And if not, what was the point? Right. So, Good question. So Harari, exactly. So Harari even says, well, you know, this is, this is a great question. Mm-hmm. And it's actually one that is seldom asked. Historians almost never ask this question. So they're very good at telling us what happened, why it happened, and yeah. what the goals of different people were. But if you go back a level to the satellite view... What, is, what was the point? Well, to be fair, of course, it's not a question for historians. It's a question for philosophers. Yeah. Um, so the historians are quite right to tell us what happened and perhaps to tell us why it happened, but not to make judgments about whether there was any point to it. Yeah. Harari is probably a historian slash philosopher of sorts yeah. because he likes to get involved in some of these yeah, questions. he's into the big picture questions. Yeah, and you could argue that it's actually the most important question we should be asking. You could, um, and I think many philosophers would suggest that it is. And uh, it's also, of course, an important political question. Yeah, and it's an important psychological question. It's an important economic question. Absolutely. And it's important... From a personal point of view, because I like being happy, huh? I, I, I prefer yeah. it to being unhappy. You're a generalist. <laughs> I'm a generalist. <laughs> so when we look at history, um, for example, a nationalist might say that political self-determination is what we should all be striving for. Yes. Uh, a communist might say that everyone would be happy if we just lived under the dictatorship of the proletariat. Absolutely. And a capitalist might say that the free market can ensure the greatest happiness for the greatest number. But what if these were all wrong? What mm-hmm. if they, what if you know we did some studies, some good data came in, and they were they were seriously disproven? Well, I think they are, um, and you could throw in the theologists who have a different view, and you would, could throw in the uh, uh, psychiatrists, and we will cover some of these. In okay, so you've just thrown out the nationalists, the communists, and the capitalists in one sentence. Well, huh? I'm happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if economic growth doesn't make people happier, what's the point of capitalism? Um, we don't really have answers to these types of questions, and to be honest, we've really only just started asking them. Correct. Look, one answer, of course, regarding capitalism, technology, etc., is it empowers you. Yeah. So that 
when we ask these questions, we can then actually do something about it. Whereas back 2,000 years ago, you could ask the question, but there probably wasn't a lot you could do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so currently, on the face of it, we appear to be living in a golden age for humanity. Uh, seemingly good things have taken place due to progress. Mm -hmm. For example, modern medicine, i.e. anaesthetic hutto, has certainly raised our life expectancy. It has. Um, as we discussed in a previous chapter, we have a marked reduction in violence. Absolutely. Uh, we've eliminated large-scale famines. We have. And we've eliminated all large-scale pandemics, hutto. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and the large-scale famines, too, is we actually have bigger famines now than we've ever had before, but as a proportion of the overall population. That far and generally, uh, my understanding is that most famines are man-made. They're political, right? Rather than being... Back in, the, back in the day, there was nothing anybody could do about it. Correct. Uh, which is to say, now we can do things about it, and we often don't, which yeah. means it's, it's our fault. Now, it's, you know, the locusts still fly, and the, you know, the deserts still do their thing, and we still get a lack of monsoons or things like that. So the natural causes of famine continue to be there. But we now have the ability to ship food from other places in the world. Yeah. Alas, we don't. We do do it, but not enough. Yeah, and the problem is how do you ensure that it gets to the people that really need uh, it? And there's a lot of examples of that not exactly taking place. So. Yes. Um, I'm going to go back to the elimination of large-scale pandemics. I threw that in there myself. Indeed. Because I have read that in the past. Um, uh, the three things that we've sort of eliminated, and I can't, I can't remember, but it's, it comes down to violence, famine, and I think illness, you know, not right. eliminated, but to a yeah. large degree. Yeah. I noticed in my audio book, Harari didn't mention pandemic because it was written 10 years ago, and luckily he didn't. Right. Uh, so I'm clearly being a bit facetious there. But, but we are now, we, we're dealing with polio, we're largely on top of leprosy, so, you know, there has been great progress. Oh, there's been progress, yeah. The golden age of humanity, a couple of criticisms of that is that this is a very new advance okay yes. you can really say the last couple hundred years yes. you know probably beginning 500 years ago uh it's mostly taken place in the 19th and 20th uh, centuries so it's in a sense it's a blip on the radar yeah uh we tend to assume these changes are permanent and you know things are just going to get better and better but we don't really have enough timeline data to really know if that's true I and mean, we Correct. can look back on it in ten thousand years time if we're still around and go oh my god you know yeah. that was just a, an absolute blip on the radar no it's 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 we may have the a certain type of singularity, and what's on the other side of it may be back to the same old, same old. <laughs> so, you and I can sit here and say, oh my God, you know, we're in a golden age and we've really made a lot of progress. But is it fair to judge progress by our perspective, Hutto, rather than the perspective of a 19th century Welsh coal miner, a Chinese opium addict in the 19th century, or a Tasmanian Aborigine? Absolutely. And of course, as a generalist, I would say... All viewpoints have their validity, yeah. and you need to take them all into account. The problem with that is it makes things so complicated. It does. Uh, so I, I, I think I'll just go with my own opinion. Well, <laughs> this, of course, is what most people do, and why they do it. The brief golden age we're currently living in might sow the seeds for a future catastrophe, hello. Yep. And the classic example of that is ecological disaster. That is the classic But there example. could be many. There, yeah, there's, there's many other examples. Well, we we've also, we, you know, we're maintaining the peace by uh, nuclear weapons and threat of mass destruction. Ecological disaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
Also, we can talk about a golden age from the perspective of being a human. But what about all the other species on the planet? Indeed. They're going through a nightmare right now. Absolutely. Major, major qualifier, that one. Yeah. And I cannot say that the human perspective is the only one that matters. That makes no real sense at all in yeah. my mind. Yeah. So it may be the case that we will look back on modern industrial agriculture as one of the greatest crimes in history. Yeah. I actually... I actually subscribe to that view. I, I think I might have mentioned on this podcast before that I think in a certain amount of time, and I don't know what that time is, I'm going to say 200 years, we will look back on the way we treat animals in a similar way that we currently look at slavery. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, um, it's hard to justify. Look, I think you're right. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to reduce my intake of calamari. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to stop eating dog, dolphin. <laughs> Uh, and the other thing is, um, we tend to consider, well not we tend to consider, but it's tempting to consider the happiness of white people or rich people, the middle class, whatever. You can sit back in your bubble and go, oh yeah, everything's going well, look at all this progress. Um, but that's not necessarily the whole story either. It's far from the whole story. Um, the hands in humanity to man continues unabated. Yeah. So one of the problems with happiness, in a sense, is measuring it, right? So, yeah. so far we've discussed it as a product of material factors, such as health, diet and wealth, which yeah. actually can be measured. Yeah. Um, and the assumption is, is that if people have more of these things, then they must be happier. To be fair, as a species, in common with most mammal and almost all species, we have chemistry in the brain which prompts us to eat that, those berries, so this will make you happier. Yeah. Because it's actually sustenance and a way of surviving. So survive, thrive, reproduce, the three great goals of any species. Yeah. And so, yes, we have brain chemistry, which prompts us to do the things we need to do to survive, thrive, and reproduce. Yeah. Um, there is a natural thing which flows from that. Mmm, eating this honey was good. Therefore, eating more of this honey would be better. Yes. Um, I've got two great sports cars out there, I wish, and they make me happy. So if I had 20 of them, <laughs> I would be happier. Yes. And one of the one of the problems with those is obviously addiction, which is a huge uh, issue in our 21st Indeed. century society. Yeah. I like drinking beer, though, as you know. Yes. And uh, it's not too often I have one beer. No. Because one is good, two is better, and 15 is just unreal. Well, they also have the effect of lighting you up and you, you get a sort of happiness boost from this. <laughs> Maybe I'll just forget about my unhappiness, I don't <laughs> um, But, it, you know, perhaps happiness doesn't come from material factors. Perhaps social, ethical and spiritual factors play a greater role than these material yeah. factors. And these are harder to measure, for example. Um, and certainly many poets, philosophers and priests have sort of advocated for this uh, over the journey. Absolutely. Um, haven't always been listened to, of course. <laughs> um, perhaps it's true that people with great material wealth suffer more from alienation and meaninglessness and therefore unhappiness. 
well, this is also the Metzloff hierarchy of needs. When yeah. you're down the bottom, you're just trying to satisfy the hunger, food and shelter. Yeah. As you get to the top, you're saying, what's it all about now? Yeah, that's right. And he does cover that. I actually like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. He has self-actualisation, I think, at yeah. the top. Yeah. And you, 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 you can sort of get all your material needs looked after and then disregard those higher needs. Indeed. And it will kind of lead to unhappiness, I think. Uh, not that I'm a, not that I have all my material needs uh, looked after, Hado, so I don't know. I'm just speculating. Um, so we're talking about happiness, so we may as well define it before we go any further. And a generally accepted definition of happiness is two-word definition: subjective well-being. Mm-hmm. It's something that we feel inside. Mm-hmm. So this leads to the measurement problem: how are we going to measure it, Hado? And the answer is generally we give people questionnaires and ask them questions. Exactly so. So, sorry, you you go. Well, one of the problems I have, and I hit this problem with atheists, is they have this tendency to say subjective opinions are not evidence. But this is yet another example of the scientific approach to Mm. measuring happiness, which uses subjective opinions for obvious reasons. Yeah, I, I mean, my first thought on that is... Some subjective opinion. I mean, that doesn't count for every subjective opinion. I mean, you've used an example of how they can be used as evidence, but you've got to be careful not to say that all subjective opinions are evidence. Absolutely not. I'm also making the point that, you know, the arguments against using subjective opinions also apply. It's just sometimes subjective opinion is the best you've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed you raised your eyebrows a little bit when I def- well, when I read the definition of happiness as subjective well-being. Mm. How do you feel about that definition? Uh, yeah, the word well-being is... We have so many words. We have satisfaction, we have peace, we have contentment, yeah. we have pleasure, um, we have happiness, we have well-being. Nirvana. Exactly. Now, they all have subtle differences in meaning, etc. Yeah. So, Putting happiness in connection with well-being is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. We could throw in other words like contentment or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I tend to get satisfaction when my achievements are having some sort of alignment with my hopes and expectations. Yes, yes. Um, all totally subjective, yeah, of course. Yeah. I think well-being is probably... A, a, I think you said it well. I think well-being is probably an attempt to use a term that captures all of those things. Yes. Um, so we've been studying this stuff for a while now, and we've, we've found some interesting conclusions that have been reached by modern empirical studies. So the first one, Hutto, is that money does in fact bring happiness. Indeed. Keep going. Uh, but it only up to a point. Indeed. <laughs> Beyond that point, you're not going to get more miserable just because you've got more money, but you won't. Basically, the amount of happiness you get from extra money once you get to a certain point is is negligible. Sure, and this is a standard idea of economics. You pay off as you get more and more of something yeah. until you reach yes. saturation. Yeah. Uh, and that's covered in economics as well, marginal utility yeah, and things like right. that. The yeah. marginal utility of the last unit is a, is a lot less than the marginal utility right, of the exactly. first unit. Um, so I read a study about this, uh, this income uh, versus happiness thing about 10 years ago now. And their conclusion was that the cutoff point is $70,000 per year. So I've upped that to, due to inflation to $75,000 a year. Right. So my belief, I probably believe it, is that 
If you're earning $75,000 a year, then you're not going to get any happier from earning any more money. Now, understand that Matt's probably talking in, in Australian, Australian, Australian dollars, dollars yeah. and no. stuff. And they're very rubbery figures Yeah, ex exactly. Well. So yeah. that should match something like $60,000 US on the current right. exchange rates. But yeah. the exchange it's not just exchange rate, though, right, though. It's, it's price levels. It's, well, this is exactly yeah. right. So it depends so largely yeah. I mean, if you're spending you're your living. money in your local country, in a sense, the exchange rate doesn't matter much, except exactly. it feeds in, obviously, exactly. to the price of your yeah. imports. Um, but that's for an economics discussion, Hutto. Indeed. <laughs> the second thing we've learned, Hutto, is that illness decreases happiness in the short term, but it only leads to long-term unhappiness if the person's condition is constantly deteriorating or if they're in constant pain. Yeah. So Harari uses the example of two twins who are basically the same level of happiness one walks to work and gets hit by a bus and becomes a paraplegic. Yeah. Now, obviously, they're going to be very unhappy for yeah. a while. But yeah. it turns out that after a period of time, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's around the 12-month mark, you'll find that their ha her, her, her happiness has bounced back to basically yeah. the same as her twins. Right. Um, there's two or three things here, of course. One is we change our expectations. Yep. Um, the second thing is, and so, you know, once again, if you've dropped your expectations, um, then your achievements are now again matching your expectations. A degree of satisfaction and happiness is in their sense of well-being. Yeah. Um, the second thing is she suddenly found that she can now make the basketball team in a wheelchair, <laughs> you know, which she had no hope of. Um, so again, this yeah. is a, a different measure of expectations yeah. comes in. Third is we talked about level two chaotic systems in connection with economics, well, they apply absolutely in relation to happiness. This is all about our changing expectations. We're changing the units of measure, if you like, yeah. of how we measure our happiness. And the fourth one is that since you correctly used the words marginal utility, I think marginal utility actually applies to happiness as well. I was miserable, then I got happy, now I'm happier, but it doesn't mean as much to me as it yeah. used Yeah, it's almost like a normal distribution. Yeah, the the yeah. bulk of the work's done in the middle. Yeah. And to get happier once you're an 8 out of 10 is yes. really, really... It's a bit like a golf handicap. I mean, you can get down to 10, and then, but to get to 10 to 3 is exponentially more difficult, and to get from 3 to professional player is just, you know, yeah. Yeah, so and, much. And then there's the other horrible thing that goes with it, of look, which is what Buddha was saying, of look, you know, I'm happy now. I could lose it all. Yeah. What do I have to do to get immortality? Yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about those issues yeah. a bit later on. Yeah. Uh, we talk about whether being immortal will make you unhappy and also how Buddha answered the question of happiness. So stay tuned, Hello. I'm staying tuned. Um, so it turns out the third thing we've found is that family and community seem to have more impact on our happiness than money and health. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bit of a worry for me, hello, because I've I've got them ranked health, money, and family and community as as my top three priorities, and yeah. maybe I've got them the wrong way around. Well, you're perhaps an outcast from community, but really not. <laughs> However, it is true, of course, in Western society we have very fractured communities, and we that's do. part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, so this implies that the tremendous improvement in material conditions over the past two hundred years may have been offset by the collapse of the family and community, mm. which we discussed in detail in a previous podcast. Um, he, 
Harari also gives the example that freedom, which we sort of view as a uh, unabashed good, mm-hmm. uh, could actually be a disadvantage to our happiness. No. For example, we get more freedom in choosing our spouse than we mm-hmm. used to, but they also get more freedom in choosing to leave us. Yeah, well, uh, well aware of that one. <laughs> Quid pro quo, Hutto, it gets you every time. It, it certainly is. And um, yeah, look, I, I was quite happy as an Egyptian slave, just trying to, <laughs> trying to build this pyramid so that my, uh, my emperor could go to the heavens and join, join the gods. Well, it's funny because Harari uses that example. He's, he compares the Egyptian slaves back in the day to the modern Egyptians. Mm. And the slaves may have been happier because the modern Egyptians basically revolted against, uh, against their ruler fairly recently. Exactly. Even though they were doing materially infinitely better. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, the next thing we've learned is that successful marriages seem to have a directly proportional impact on happiness. Mm. So people in a successful marriage are happier than people that are not. Mm-hmm. Can you see a problem with this line of reasoning, Hutto? Well, yes, uh, you have always pointed it out and you, you can make the point. Correlation does not equal causation. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so hot, hot, successful marriages and happiness are, are linked but we don't know which one's causing which. So, exactly. you know, is the successful marriage making people happier or are happier people more likely to have a successful marriage? And we should also mention conjobs in here. Um, one is the idea that we should be married. In fact, one can achieve a large measure of happiness by not being married. There's, there's the old joke of Snow, Snow White and uh, the prince comes along, it could be sleep. Sleeping Beauty or whatever, and Prince Charming comes along, you see him, kisses her, wakes her up and all the rest of it, and uh, then proposes to her. Uh-huh. And Snow White's Sleeping Beauty is not having a barbie. It says, what do you think you are? You ride in here, you kiss me without my permission, you, you, know, you think that that makes you some sort of prince, then you want to put me, tie me to the kitchen sink, have babies by me while you go off and fight your wars, you know, forget it, who do you think you are? <laughs> And Prince Charming lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I haven't heard that one before. Uh, my point there is no one's suggesting you can't be happy if you're not in a successful marriage, but the numbers have suggested that people in successful marriages right. tend to be happy. Now, my point about the con job is, one is, there is a suggestion that you should be happily married, yeah. and if you're not happily married, therefore you can't be truly happy. Equally, we can all perfectly well see that if you're in an unhappy marriage, that's not going to make you happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it may well be that we're seeking to be in a happy marriage and everybody who isn't therefore feels that they can't be happy. Yeah, okay, I, I agree with that. That's a mistake. So the way I rank these things is I would say being in a happy marriage would be the best. Mm-hmm. Being happily single or being single is the second best, and being in an unhappy marriage, I think, is probably the worst option mm-hmm. out of those three. Um, there was a nice statement in a book, a good book. Anyway, it was talking about a uh, a cardinal in the Catholic Church who got good food and servants and you know, good income and everything else, and was well aware that he was his happiness was even more blessed by the fact that he had no wife. <laughs> That's your second uh, anti-wife uh, story today, hello? <laughs> well, there's a few of them. <laughs> I think we should move on. <laughs> mm. 
So the fifth and maybe the most important thing we've discovered is, despite what we've just said, happiness doesn't really depend on these material objective conditions such mm -hmm. as health, wealth and community. Um, rather, as you've sort of previously mentioned, it depends on the correlation between objective conditions and sub subjective expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, in a nutshell, being satisfied with what you already have is more important than getting more of what you want. Mm -hmm. I once read a book about 20 years ago now, and it was called The Science of Happiness. Mm -hmm. And so it basically talked about all these studies. And it was a couple hundred pages, and you had to sort of slog through it all. As books tend to be, you really only need about five pages <laughs> to know what they're trying to say. And uh, actually, you know what? I'm not going to tell you this, because it's one of my unanswerable questions. So I'm going to circle back around to that, because the question is, what is the secret to maximising your happiness throughout your life? Right. So I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, tell you now because I don't want you to get a point. <laughs> okay, so that was an intrigue and foreshadow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a tease. Oh no, no, all authors know about these techniques. <laughs> <laughs> so mine was completely unintentional. Um, so this finding that human happiness depends on subjective expectations makes studying it more difficult over the course of time. Indeed. Um, imagining ourselves in the shoes of people from the past doesn't work because it doesn't work very well. Indeed. Because we're inevitably pacing our expectations onto them. Okay. Indeed. So I would not have been a happy Egyptian slave because I have 21st <laughs> Because you wanted to have a car. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> For example, we look back on the medieval peasants' inability to bathe frequently and change their clothes with horror. And we assume that would make us extremely unhappy. Indeed. But it didn't make them extremely unhappy. Um, and I think what's interesting is that we look at sort of pets that, uh, you know, aren't wearing clean clothes and we don't really worry too much about that. But if we put ourselves in that position, all of a sudden it's, we think it's going to be a source of unhappiness for mm -hmm. us. Um, I mean, let's face it, half the time your dog doesn't want to have the bath. Indeed. Um, you can train them to sort of be okay during the bath, but uh, it's not really the dog's uh, desire, is it? You give them a good bath and they immediately run out and roll <laughs> in the dirt. We, we all know it. <laughs> so I think that's a good way of kind of mapping out sometimes our inability um, to figure out the expectations of people in the past and, put, and really put ourselves in, in their shoes. I thought it was a good point. Um, the other thing we have today, Hutto, is the mass media and the advertising industry. We do. And they may be depleting our happiness. They absolutely are. <laughs> Maybe, I'd probably say definitely are. One of my common arguments, yeah. the job of advertising yeah. is to make you dissatisfied with what you have. Yeah, no question. Um, so back in the day, it probably made you happier to be the prettiest girl in your small medieval village than it does to be the prettiest girl in your class today. Well. Um, so, I mean, the thing, the thing being, if you were a, a, an 18-year-old girl in, in a, a small village, you probably, almost by definition, were the, uh, the prettiest girl Absolutely. that you knew of. Absolutely. Uh, even though you might have had some uh, cowpox scars and, you know, you hadn't bathed for a month or whatever, you thought you were a real hottie and you well, probably were. Well, I didn't have American dentistry going for me, so... <laughs> yeah. But now you can be the best-looking guy in your class... And if you don't have a six-pack, you might think you're ugly. Yeah, that's right. The standards are set by the advertising industry. Yeah. And this doesn't actually work in history. It actually works in the current day. It's possible that third-world malcontent 
is largely caused by comparing themselves to first world standards. Yep. And these first world standards created by the media and uh, advertising industry are unrealistic anyway. And uh, an example that I thought of is the sitcom Friends, the American sitcom Friends. You've got all these people underemployed, sort of, you know, yep. 20-somethings in New York, and they're all living in these great apartments in Manhattan. Now, I'm sorry, I don't think that's probably going to be happening. <laughs> But if you're if you're in the third world and you're aware of the show, you're like, oh, that must be what it's like to live in America. Yeah. So that creates some um, unhappiness. Uh, didn't have to worry about that about that in the Egyptian uh, pharaoh days. We did not. I mean, <clears throat> the news bombards us with everything that's going on that's wrong in the world, um, which we simply would never have known about. Yeah. Yeah. Three centuries ago. That's right. So even immortality might lead to unhappiness, Hutto. So, for starters, some people will be able to afford the new treatment, yeah. and some won't. Yeah. So the yeah, so the net happiness level in the world will probably yeah. <laughs> decrease. Um, but even the people that can afford it probably or possibly won't be happier either, because that okay, they might live forever, but only if they don't get hit, get hit by a bus right. or or you know. Um, chewed up by a shark or whatever. So yep. it might be possible that these new immortal people that are young and good-looking forever are terrified to leave the house because yep. they don't want to have an accident because yep. they've got so much more to lose. Absolutely. One hates, hates to think what their life insurance policy might look like. <laughs> well, actually, it'd be pretty cheap. Uh, well, yeah, no. Um, how much do you have to pay out when you've just lost a billion years of life? Oh, you're talking... Yeah, okay, sorry. You're talking about a whole life policy. Yeah. <laughs> No one uses them anymore. <laughs> um, so I thought that was interesting as well. Um, and the pain of losing a loved one. So let's say, you know, you give your family, you know, you think you're going to live with your... You're in a happy marriage, you can live with your life forever. And uh, she gets, um, you know, hit by a bus, as I say. I mean, the pain of losing her will be more than the current situation we're in where we're sort of like, okay, it hurts and it does. But it's going to happen to everyone at some point. Absolutely. Now, yeah, a bunch of other issues you can throw in. I mean, apart from Rupert Murdoch, who else is going to rejoice that he's going to live forever? <laughs> he's not going to raise the happiness level. <laughs> oh, I see you're saying some people won't live forever, even if they do live forever. Well, people won't be happy about it. I doubt that James Murdoch is going to be thrilled with the idea either. You know, the whole idea of inheritance disappears. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. The change, the social changes are huge. Yeah, that's as true. well as, quite apart from the fact, of course, there's no evidence that the human brain is designed to live for even a hundred years, let yeah. alone a thousand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so studies have shown that our emotional and mental worlds, rather than being governed by external factors, they're actually governed by uh, endorphins. Yes, that's the one. I've just come from the gym, so I'll probably have a few endorphins Indeed, in here right yes, now. Yes, you're looking pretty. Happy. <laughs> That's unusual. We're going to talk about how happy we are uh, later on. So this means you can't be made happy by winning the lottery or even falling in love because people are only made happy by pleasant sensations in their bodies, Hutto. Um, so when you kick the winning goal in a World Cup final, you're not actually reacting to the goal. You're actually reacting to the various hormones that have been released in your body and electrical signals storming different parts Correct. Of your brain. However, it needs to be understood that dopamine is part of the learning process. So you actually 
you can start to salivate as you see the biscuit because you've now associated eating the biscuit with pleasure. Yeah. So we can now simply associate the biscuit being there with pleasure yeah. coming, yeah. which can then you can then take the next step of buying the biscuits, which you're then going to eat. Yeah. And you can then associate earning money with buying the biscuits, with seeing the biscuits, with eating the biscuits. Yeah. And this is how the dopamine training process works. Mm. So the guy who scores the goal has been taught to understand that his value as a soccer player has just gone up and he's going to be rich for life and, <laughs> and all this stuff. Yeah, goes, yeah. In that, he would be thinking about that a few hours after kicking yeah. the guy. I don't think you'd kick a World Cup winning goal and no. go, oh, I'm going to make stacks of money out of this. No, but the point is the association is made automatically in the brain. Dopamine is released and all the rest yes. of it. Um, so it's purely chemical, yes, but it is a learnt process. Have you ever played in a winning grand final? Have you ever had the ecstasy of, of that moment? Um, if it was, it wasn't a big one because I don't recall yeah. it. I never really have time. either. I, you know, I've won a couple of social basketball grand finals and so yeah. forth, but they were no big deal. Yeah. Um, I've never, you know, I've never... I've never won any, you know, won a big thing that meant the world to me. And... Um, I'd like to experience that actually, uh, because um, I've had people describe it to me as, as it feels like love. You know, like basically, you can have um, you know teammates in your club rooms afterwards that you yeah. can't stand them, but that that moment you love those guys. And in fact, I've got an example from my life. So uh, I went on a holiday in um, in New Zealand years ago, and uh, I did a tandem skydive. Right. Not because I wanted to skydive, because I'm terrified of heights, but just because it was on my bucket list and I wanted to get it off, right? Yeah. And it was a good opportunity. So um, I did this tandem skydive, and I hated the guy that I did it with. He was an absolute asshole, right? I just couldn't stand him. Right. Anyway, I jumped, we jumped out of the plane, and we got, you know, you know all that. I hated it. I, I hated every second of it. <laughs> I was scared going up in the plane, let alone jumping out of the thing. Even when the chute opened, I was still scared, right? Then when my bum hit the ground and I was safe, I was ecstatic and I loved that man. I was right. like, I was yeah. like, oh, thank you. You're the best. And I was like hugging him and everything. And, yeah. then, and then after about, I reckon it was five minutes, we were driving back. Yeah, he was driving us back to where we had to go. And I was like, man, I can't stand this guy. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that just that example just came away. Um, now we we do know, of course, you can have adrenaline and and endorphin highs, but I do think part of the team bonding and success thing may include an oxytocin release. Yeah. But I haven't seen a scientific study confirming that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know a bit about this. I don't know the details of the different drugs and how they're released. And we'll talk about that when we get to a science uh, yeah. science show. Yeah. Uh, biology, I suppose, that'll come under. Or happiness, maybe we might do something on happiness one day. Um, um, consciousness. Yeah. So, so this all sounds good, but there's a bit of bad news, Hutto. If you're seeking external bliss, eternal bliss, not external bliss, right. These biological mechanisms appear to be programmed to keep happiness relatively constant. Yep. You can't really hack them. You can hack them temporarily, but you can't really change them over the long term very easily. Yep, because they're designed for survival. Correct. That's very. That's one hundred percent correct. So happiness is not really a survival 
necessity. I mean, maybe a little bit, but it's negligible, right? That's right. So it's not really a criteria that natural selection uses in our evolution. Uh, evolution appears to have gone, taken the middle ground. It appears to have made us neither too miserable or too happy That's because right. both of those things would probably be disadvantageous exactly to, our, right. to our evolution. You attempt to avoid misery yeah. and you attempt to achieve a level of happiness, but there's no survive, thrive, reproduce benefits yeah. to getting higher than that. In fact, if you get too happy, you start to slack off. Well, I think Arara uses a great example. So imagine if the male orgasm lasted forever. Yeah. <laughs> so you have sex once and you're like, you're set for life, right? Yeah. You, you're not going to be interested in having sex again. Yeah, sure. You're not going to be interested in doing anything. In fact, you'll probably die the next day because you won't have eaten. <laughs> <laughs> or you've, you've gone up to give a lion a cuddle. It's the old, the old bull and the young bull, you know. <laughs> They've jumped one each and said, oh, that was nice. <laughs> you know, let's go back to eating grass. <laughs> um, so, yeah, males would have far less incentive to mate if that was the case. Um, so that's an extreme example of, of, of why no. evolution has probably, you know, got us to, to average. So human biochemistry... It can be compared to a thermostat that keeps the the temperature of a room the same, regardless, yeah. regardless of what it's like outside. Uh, interestingly enough, some people are lucky and some people are unlucky because if you rate happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, you'll vary around a mean as an individual. But you know, my mean might be higher than yours or yeah. my mean might be lower than yours. Yeah. Not to say well, I can't reach the same level of happiness as you, but yeah. you know, it's, it's less frequent yes. and I'm, I might be more likely to be miserable. Yeah. So um, There are variations in, in the medium midpoint <laughs> and there are variations in the variability. You tend to be a, a very happy, sad... I'm an like extreme guy. You are. <laughs> well, I tend to be much more of the middle, middle, middle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, these numbers, 1 to 10 numbers that we're talking about, they, they probably or almost definitely haven't changed much throughout history because we're still the same species, right? Exactly so. Um, and history has had almost no effect on our biochemistry. Indeed. And that's true when you think yeah. about it. It's affected a lot of things culturally, from yeah. a biochemistry point of view, really not too much at all. Um, history can change the external stimuli, but does, does not change the resulting chemical levels in the body. Yeah. Okay. Now we have technology for doing that. Yeah. Um, now, for example, the French Revolution. Now, I think I tend to look back on the French Revolution. Yeah, it was traumatic, but it was probably a good thing, right? Um, it rad radically changed the lives of French people, but it, it did. didn't actually change the French people. It didn't change their biochemistry, right? No. So despite all the social progress that was made during the revolution, there was... Hardly any impact on French happiness. <laughs> when you think about it like that, you're thinking, oh, what, what is the point of uh, all this stuff we do? Um, so what was the point of it? Should, should we stop wasting our time on social reforms and capitalism and all these things that we talked about? Or, and just concentrate solely on the manipulation of our biochemistry? Um, now, there's a famous novel, obviously, that, uh, is, that explores yeah. that. And I, we get to it... Uh, I mean, the, the novel is... Um, Brave New, World. Brave New World by, yeah. by Huxley. I haven't actually read it. I'm familiar with the theme, and you have read it. I have. So when we get to our actual questions, I'm gonna, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. Indeed. The meaning of life, Hutto. So it took us uh, 19 podcasts, but we finally got there. We finally got there. 
<laughs> the rest was just preamble. <laughs> 42. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is happiness really as simple as the experiencing of pleasant bodily sensation? And this definition is, so we've talked about happiness as the you know, material factors. We've talked about it as experiencing pleasant yep. bodily sensations. But we can also, we can contest this second definition as well. And a good example is bringing up a child. So bringing up a child can be, can produce a lot of moments of unpleasantness, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're changing nappies, you're mm -hmm. dealing with tantrums, you know, the kids are fighting, mm -hmm. you're tired, you can't um, sleep. But yet most parents, not all, will claim that their children are their main source of happiness. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't meet either of the two sort of definitions of happiness that, or the two sort of ways of getting happy that we've mentioned. Right. So is there something else to it, Hutto? So yeah. maybe happiness is not the surplus of pleasant over unpleasant moments, but consists of seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningful and worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I think you'd subscribe to this, actually. Mm -hmm. This sounds more like your point of view. I'm more of an endorphins man. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a cognitive and ethical component to happiness as well. And... I didn't know this quote, but the, uh, the philosopher Nietzsche apparently said, if you have a why to live, you can bear almost any how. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Mm -hmm. That's a great quote. Were you familiar yeah. with that quote? I am, yes. Yep. You, you are now, but were you familiar with it before? Uh, I was, yep. yes. Yeah. Oh, you must be just a little bit I, I couldn't Actually, I couldn't have put it down to Nietzsche, but I'm very familiar with the quote. Yeah, I, I had As, heard as you say, this is more in line with my viewpoint. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so a meaningful life can provide extreme satisfaction in the midst of great hardship. Mm -hmm. A meaningless life can be a terrible ordeal, regardless of how comfortable you are. Indeed. Hard to argue with that. So on a minute-by-minute -minute wellbeing scale, we are probably happier than the medieval peasants. But on a wider lifelong scale, we may well be unhappier. Because say what you like about the medieval peasants, but they certainly had a meaning to their life. I'm talking about the Europeans yeah. now. They were, they were Christian. Yeah. And they believed in, after they died, they were going to live in eternal happiness with God. Mm -hmm. So that may or may not be delusional, but the, the fact is, if they believed it, it probably made them happier than a, than a nihilist today. Correct. Belief is important. It ties in with expectations. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too, there was a very good film, and I've forgotten its title, but it was about an Indian who was forced off his farm and had to go to the city and he was starving, he got a, a large family and life was a major struggle. He, he pulled a rickshaw all day and he was very lucky to even got a, happy to have got the job as a rickshaw puller and you know, life was very tough. But then his daughter wanted to marry but he had to be able to give a dowry with her. It didn't have to be much but it had to be a little bit of gold at least. Yeah. And he somehow managed to get that together and the film ends with him having got his daughter married and he is so happy. Yeah. In a society, in conditions where we would have said, you know, this is the pits. Yeah. He is so happy because he's achieved so much from yeah. so little. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so this meaning to your life will add to your happiness whether it's right or wrong. Mm. Okay. Um, and eternal bliss in, a, in it let's say, fictional afterlife will still make you happy if you yep. believe in it. 
So if happiness is really based on internal feelings, i.e. subjective well-being, mm-hmm. then to be happier, we need to re-engineer our biochemical systems. Mm-hmm. Now, if happiness is based on a feeling that life is meaningful, then we either need to find the meaning of life or delude ourselves that we have. Mm-hmm. So think we've found it. Yep. Which is interesting. So from a happiness perspective, thinking you've found the meaning of life, i.e. 42, okay. <laughs> it's just as good as actually finding it. <laughs> and, uh, another of the arguments I make to atheists is that, you know, believing in an afterlife and a heaven has no downside. If you're wrong, you'll never know. Yeah. If you're right, great. The counter-argument to that is you can't believe in something that you don't believe in. So this is true. You know, you either believe in it or you don't. I mean, you can explore it and find out more about sure. it. But if you don't believe it, then you're not oh, going to believe no, well, this, Now we're getting into the basis of how one comes to believe things. Okay, so uh, yeah, that, that's off topic yeah. a little bit, but I'd like to explore that more. No, oh, absolutely. Uh, it's not now, but no, indeed, later okay, on. Okay, okay, we have a million podcasts ahead of us. So is there a third alternative, Hutto? And um, it turns out that there might be, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that happiness is determined by your subjective feelings is very popular, especially now, because the, the, the dominant religion slash ideology of our society and day is liberalism, which sanctifies the individual and how yeah. they feel, yeah. right? But it has been criticised throughout history, okay? So mm-hmm. Buddhism is the classic example of this. So Buddhism is essentially a movement religion ideology, which is really more about happiness than probably any of the any other ideology that's out there, yeah. okay? It's really built around the idea of yeah, being happy. Yeah, because Buddha was appalled at the misery. Yeah. Now, Christianity basically says, yeah, be miserable, no problem, <laughs> you know, you'll have a wonderful life. Because you've got an eternal afterlife. So yeah. they still had to, they still had to throw something in there, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it, it says, you know, poverty is no problem, suffering is no problem, give all your wealth away. In fact, they're good. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I do not, I do not agree with this. Although yeah. I'm a Christian, I see no virtue in poverty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Buddhism is an exception. It says poverty is not the problem. Yeah. Misery is the problem. Yeah, yeah. So Buddhism agrees with the biological description of happiness. So it's saying that happiness is about feelings inside. Uh, it comes from events inside one's body and not from external events. But it leads to very different conclusions. So the Buddhist insight is that our feelings, whether they be pleasant or unpleasant, are basically no more than fleeting vibrations that come and go and that change all yep. the time, all right? If I want to constantly experience pleasant feelings, I have to keep chasing them and I also have to simultaneously drive away the unpleasant feelings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if I succeed, um, the quest never ends and I'm unable to achieve any lasting satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So if I'm chowing down on the most delicious ice cream of all time, I don't know. Yep. I'm spending half my time worrying about the fact that it's going to end. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, The root of suffering is not negative feelings or even a feeling of meaninglessness, but it it actually comes from the never-ending and pointless pursuit of ephemeral feelings. The mind is never satisfied because even when it's content, it fears the end of the pleasant feeling. People can only become liberated from suffering when they understand the impermanent nature of all their feelings and stop craving them. Mm-hmm. When the pursuit finally stops, the mind becomes very relaxed, clear, and satisfied. Apparently, 
I have not achieved this state right. that uh, others apparently have. I'm actually surprised at that because I've seen you consume vast amounts of alcohol and many people do achieve it. Well, this is the exact opposite to that, Hutto. Oh, okay. Um, so the feeling still occurs. So what Buddhism does is it drops the nexus between the feeling and the suffering. So you yes. can still have unpleasant feelings, but you don't suffer as a result of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in a sense, it's a catch-all, you know. <laughs> it, um, it's an interesting, that distinction between pleasure and bad feelings, yeah. pain, suffering, etc., as against happiness and unhappiness. The Buddha, the Buddha strives to live in the present moment instead of fantasizing uh, or worrying about the past and the future. Yeah. Apparently, it brings about a very profound sense of peace and contentment. Uh, Buddha realized that not only was happiness independent of external stimuli, but that true happiness was also independent of our internal feelings. Yeah. This flies in the in the face of modern liberalism, which likes to sanctify our our internal feelings. Um, so the key to happiness, according to this philosophy, is to know your true self, to understand who or what you really are. You are not your feelings, but something else beyond the feelings. Right. And that's the end of the chapter. So you have. Two minutes to say something before we take a break, or you don't have to say anything at all, and we can move on to the unanswerable questions. Well, there's a lot to cover there, um, and we'll cover a lot of them in the unanswerable questions. Buddha, again, has hit an important truth. Um, so, you know, the generalist view that all of these viewpoints have validity continues, yes, Buddha hit an important truth. It's not the only important truth. No. But it is an important truth. Yeah. Um, so I go along with that. Okay. Um, and yes, I definitely emphasise the fact that we are not our feelings. Um, our feelings are part of us, but... You have said that to me before, actually. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are not our feelings and we are not our happiness. Mm. We, we are so many more things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's take, a, let's take a break and we'll come back for the unanswerable questions. I look forward to them. See you on the flip-flop. questions on the topic of happiness i hope my answers will make you not too unhappy but they are at least interesting <laughs> well hopefully um so i want to uh i've made another executive decision that i haven't told you about Hutto. oh another one i've right. changed unanswerable questions to possibly unanswerable questions because i'm a bit upset with how many you've been getting right okay yes mm. so um i should expect the marking score to get harder yeah so, the, so in a sense the questions are now considered to be easier right and if you're not getting full marks then it's very disappointing right okay, okay. Okay, so before we get started today, hello, I've had a very productive day. I've, I've been to the gym uh, this morning and then I worked for, you know, six or seven hours and I've come home and had dinner and, and, and done a bit of chilling. Why don't you tell us what you've been up to today, hello? <laughs> um, I have been developing my dreams. <laughs> I have been deep in uh, subconscious, even unconscious meditation. 
working on some subconscious psychological growth. Indeed, and I have uh, achieved a greater level of coordination between my conscious and unconscious. <laughs> dealing with some... Uh... Dealing with some deep-seated issues. Indeed, indeed. So I've, uh, I've yeah. achieved a remarkable degree of relaxation. There is a very impressive way of saying that you woke up at seven p.m. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. And you I have, couldn't, I couldn't let it go without mentioning that. You have been the productive member today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into these possibly unanswerable questions. So I've got uh, fourteen for you today. So let's see how you do. So my first question is, should we use a measure other than gross domestic product to measure how well or poorly modern society is going? And the answer, of course, is yes. And the answer is we have several. Um, gross domestic product is really a measure of how an economy is going in the sense of the government's tax base, if you like, um, which is all fine and well. but. That's actually not what most people are too concerned about. Mm. The United Nations publishes a thing now called the Happiness Index. Do they? Uh, they do. Oh, and, um, I was going to wow you with an amazing fact, and now you've just preempted me. Oh, I'm so sorry, Matt. That uh, this uh, this time I spend in bed is deeply <laughs> productive. Did you dream that, Hutto? <laughs> I dreamt that. <laughs> um, I'll give you some of the interesting ones. Uh, the red ranking from 2019, which of course was before COVID hit us all. Yep. Um, the top nations were ranked as Finland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, Sweden, New Zealand. We finally get one not from Northern Europe. Yep. Canada, Australia. Uh, Austria ranked 10th and Australia ranked 11th. So we're, we, we sit outside the top 10, are Well, there's that. Now, the UK was down at 15, mm. and the UK is not exactly a single country in these Brexit days. The US is 19 and dropping. Japan's way down at 58. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it is, yeah. Russia, 68. Pakistan, 67. Egypt 137, India 140, and South Sudan 156, and I think that was as far down as... I was going to say, did you happen to know who was last? I'll tell you who often comes last in those sort of measures is Haiti. Yes. Yeah, yeah. they're usually pretty low. In now, um, you'll notice that countries like China don't even get ranked. No, there. they probably... Um, yeah. Now, the thing we need to notice is that the UN ranking actually puts a lot of emphasis on... Gross domestic GDP, products. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So there's another list, the Happy Planet Index. Okay. This is put forward um, by the, uh, the, the New European Found New Economics Foundation, mm. and they put a lot of emphasis on subjective life satisfaction, life expectancy at birth, and the ecological footprint. Yep. So they give us. For their top ranking in 2012, they have done a ranking in 2016 as well. Costa Rica, Vietnam second, Colombia third, Belize fourth, El Salvador fifth, and Australia comes in at the lowly 107th. Wow. Because of ecological footprint, you see. Yeah, um, yeah. We do tend to produce quite a lot of CO2 for not too very many people. Yeah. Um, whether it's of any consequence on a global scale, who knows, but um, so now there's also a couple of other ones. There is the um, there's a thing called green economics, which looks at how well one's also looking after the environment and a subset of that called blue economics, which tends to look at the ocean and what's happening to the oceans. 
So we do have a number of other measures of ways of looking at things and how well they're going. Yeah, okay. Um, they sound like international kind of rankings as opposed to rankings that individual governments use to make internal decisions. Correct. Now, there's, there's some smaller some smaller emphasis going on um, about goal-making, etc. There's a very good one which is being adopted by certain cities. Mm. Um, so that's a smaller scale than okay. nations. Yeah. So there is one, this was my amazing fact I was going to hear you with, Hutto. There's one country in the world that actually uh, values, that will measures gross national happiness mm -hmm. and they rate it above GDP. Right. Do you happen to know who it is? I don't. It's Bhutan. Ah, oh, right. Yeah. So that that's a measure that you would imagine would have more influence on the population because the government's using it to make decisions. Indeed. Um, and I think it's also a very good uh, government policy to emphasise how happy everybody is, bread and circuses, yeah. forget about the economy because Bhutan's economy is not exactly first world order. Right. But so what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think you've done well there. You've even done some research, so I think I'll give you a mark for that. Okay. So my second question is, is happiness even important? Very good question. Um, uh, we've had various discussions about the importance of bread and circuses. For if you're a dictator, you want to make sure that your population is reasonably happy or at least reasonably distracted on the topic of, uh, you know, keeping them happily entertained and unaware of the fact that their bellies may be hungry. Um, it has been said that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Um, keep the belly full and you're going to have a lot less problems than... Oh, Marie Antoinette. Yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah, so, uh, um, and indeed, the, the French Revolution, they did get more cake, whether it made them happy is another story. <laughs> I don't think they got more cake. What are you, well, what's going on here? She, like, she just said, let them have cake because they don't have any bread, that's but what, I don't think they had too much that, cake. That's what she said. They, they, they did not. But after the French Revolution and... Uh, oh, plenty of cake afterwards. There was, there was more cake, yes. But yeah. whether it actually made them happier, that's another story. Well, Harari sort of said in the chapter that apparently they weren't any happier yeah, because it didn't change their biochemistry. Correct. You see, so a lack of circuses was a major problem. So, look... Happiness and perceived happiness, which are not the same thing, can be very important in terms of things like social stability. Also, a lack of happiness can certainly cause things like depression. Unhappiness, I think, is actually considerably more important than happiness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... So, so, so you're saying there that happiness is a bit like oxygen, it's only a problem when you don't have any? Uh, it's not just about that, it's also very much a perception, yeah. provided you can convince people that they are happy or can expect to be happy or are getting happier or stuff like that, yeah. um, it may not be a problem even then. You know, a lot of countries, Israel for instance, thrived for a while on the idea of we are building a better future for our children. Yeah, and That's just the thought of it makes you happier. Exactly so. Yeah. Perhaps more than the reality of it. Absolutely. So I, yeah. I've also got some points which we'll cover in a minute about, you know, what constitutes happiness. Yeah. But the answer is that happiness does have some importance, considerably less than we allocate to it in everyday, well, in our very individualistic, consumerist, yeah. consumerist Yeah, well, that was probably my thought. I mean, happiness is important uh, to me personally. Yeah. But I mean, I've got to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether someone else is happy. Do you know what I mean? I, don't right. go, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make people unhappy, but I don't put the value on someone else's happiness than I probably put on my own. 
Indeed. And I doubt I'm, I'm Robinson Crusoe on that one. Indeed. And the other thing we could also mention, of course, is that many religions have put a singular lack of emphasis on happiness. Um, Christianity has this interesting word, joy, and, you know, St. Paul goes around saying, count it all joy, my brethren, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm being tortured for Christ today. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what is happiness? Mm, mm. Okay, my next question, hello, is was Isaac Newton happy? Exactly. Well, you, we had an interesting chat about this one the other day, so I'm glad that you tossed this question in. Um, the first answer, of course, is who the hell cares, Matt? Well, I can think of one person who probably cared. Well, <laughs> you might think that Isaac Newton cared, but actually not. He was a religious cleric, very interested in alchemy and stuff like that, mm. um, somewhat concerned about his immortal soul. Yeah. He got a lot of fame, a lot of pleasure from... Um, uh, acclaim and solving problems and stuff like that. He yeah. was master of the Royal Mint and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was chased his entire life, had no offspring, no family, that sort of thing. Not because he had to be, but he thought that he was, that was the way he wanted to live his life. Yeah. Um, and I think he probably got a lot of satisfaction from it. Yeah. <laughs> Some of those other words relating to happiness are Satisfaction, uh, peace, contentment, pleasure, of course, which yeah. gets into your... Which is often sort of confused for happiness, I think. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, pleasure is full, having a full, full belly and sex and all that. And, and having fun, you know, la laughing and all that. Yes. And, you know, going out and yes. having a good having night at a the festival, pub. yeah. yeah. Um, then, uh, you know, there's a certain satisfaction many people get from fame, um, You've got all the drugs, uh, Soma, of course, in Brave New World, but you've got uh, you know, heroin, serotonin, um, oxytocin. Now, you know, a good dose of oxytocin makes us all happy, makes yeah. us all in love. Yep. Um, and then there's, you know, as we said, things like expectations. If I've got low expectations and I'm achieving them, I tend to be happy. High yeah. expectations, not achieving them, I'm miserable, but yeah. I'm actually doing better. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. So... We were, talk, we were wondering whether Isaac Newton was happy. Have Isaac we, Newton. Have we... The other thing about Isaac Newton is I don't know that Isaac Newton was seeking happiness, mm. felt that he achieved happiness, or cared one way or the other. And the only other person I think would be singularly, possibly concerned about the thing would be God. Was God concerned about whether Isaac Newton is happy? And I haven't seen a lot of evidence to suggest that he, she, it, or they is either. Yeah. Um, now, there are religions which are focused around happiness and community sex and all sorts of things. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there are some religions where happiness seriously features, and um, Buddhism in particular yeah. looks at avoiding unhappiness mm. and has found certain truths relating to happiness and joy. Mm. And as I've said, Christianity is more concerned about joy than happiness. So. Okay. So... You've, you've, you've answered a lot about, talked a lot about happiness there, but I still want to know, is Isaac, was Isaac bloody happy, Hutto? Okay, I think in the conventional terms of which we think it in our consumerist society, we probably have to say, not particularly, but I doubt that he even noticed yeah. it. So I'm going to give you a tick because I like your first answer, who the hell cares? Mm -hmm. uh, Isaac Newton certainly created, uh, made a valuable contribution to the human race. Yes. And in a sense, 
whether he was happy or, not, happy or not, to me and to most people living today, I, I assume, it is kind of neither here nor there. Exactly so. Look, if I could finish my life having achieved one-tenth of what Isaac Newton achieved, oh, yeah. I consider it a great life. Well, he's one of the probably top five most influential people of all time, so... You'd have to get in the top 50 most influential people of all time to, to do one time. I would, and that's a challenge. <laughs> okay, so my next question, hello, is has religion been a tonic for people who have led lives that fail to meet their deepest instinctual yearnings? And that, that question is basically based on, a, I suppose, a sentence from the chapter, actually. Yes. Um, so uh, is religion a tonic to keep us happier, or has it been over the journey? Religion has served many roles. Um, I mean, if you're an Egyptian slave, I don't think too many of your instinctual desires are getting satisfied, and having a religion might be a, a major... Well, it was emperor yeah. worship mostly, wasn't it? Well, there was a lot of that. I mean, oh, they had a lot of gods you, well. you look, for example, at the, uh, the hymns and songs of the uh, American slaves um, yeah. working on the farms, you know, and... Swing low, sweet chariot, and yeah. all this sort of thing. It's That's where a lot of um, popular music in the 20th century yes. originated. Yes. Now, I've no doubt at all that for them, white man's religion was a major comfort. Um, mm. And in fact, they probably got to the heart of it a lot better than many of yeah, the... It's funny, I've often wondered why, uh, why the slaves took on the religion of their masters, but there is some comfort in Christianity if your life's going terribly at the moment. Yes. You can at least kind of, you know, sort of hope that there's going to be a better future after, after yeah. your life. Uh, a bit of fair judgment would be good. And, you know, the idea that your masters are going to be the judges probably doesn't weigh very well with you, is it? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. Um, Religion has also, of course, been the cause of many people leading strangely unnatural lives. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to some extent you could say that Buddhism and Hindu um, gurus, etc., Sikhs uh, are performing unnatural lives. But in a sense, human beings live unnatural lives. Yeah. We are a strange creature. Yeah. Um, Religion has been both a cause and a benefit and many other things in between, I think. Okay. Next question. Does a longer life expectancy make us happier? Ah, yes, of course. Um, we don't like the idea of dying. Dying does not <laughs> sit very well with the, the ego and the id. Having worked out that, hey, I'm here. Hey, there was a time when I wasn't here. Hey, there's going to be a time been, when I'm That must I'm have been not, terrible. You know, this is not good. Um, <laughs> So we are actually, we do not like the concept of death. The, our conscious ego does not like the idea of it ending. Yeah. Um, and it resists it in very many ways. Yeah. From the prospects of heaven and eternal life to the number of questions on core of people saying, will we achieve immortality within this next 30 years? Yeah. Um, I was, but sorry, can I just yes, uh, interject? Indeed. I was speaking to a medical scientist mm -hmm. today, and I asked her that question: "Are we going to uh, get to immortality?" And she didn't. She seemed to think no, because she works in the field of cancer research. Yeah. She, she believes that we'll never cure cancer. Right. Um, I think we probably will cure cancer. I think we will extend longevity to three hundred years, maybe a thousand years which is a very different thing to immortality. Mm. Um, oh, we were actually talking about... Um, what, what we're we weren't actually, talking about immortality, we were talking about longer life. Yeah, exactly right. Now, 
I... The big advantage of a longer life expectancy is that we put off that horrible death day that we have so much trouble dealing with. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that gives us some sort of comfort, you know. You reach 65 and say, oh, I could live another 60 years, you yeah. know, it, it, it's all right, no need to panic yet. Yeah. Um, one of the problems we've had is that we have tended to increase the tail end of life. What we're really after is 100 years of youth. Yeah. What we're getting is 100 years of old age. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I signed up for. That said, the, you know, the 40s or the new 20s and the 60s or the new middle age and this sort of thing has a certain degree of truth in it. We are, mm. you know, my activity levels compared to my grandparents are just, you know, by the time they were my age, yeah. they were pottering around the place. And, yeah, by the time you hit 50, you know, 100 years ago, you were probably an old person, yeah. living an old person's lifestyle. Um, some remarkable exceptions, but they were yeah. the exceptions to yeah. prove the rule, yeah. Um, look, I do think increased lifespan has a lot going for it, because it takes us so much time to finish our basic education these days and keep learning. It would be a shame to get to all the degree of wisdom I've reached and then just drop yeah. off the end of the plane. Yeah. Um, we need to get a return on all that effort. Yeah. Um, so I like increased lifespan, but we're, uh, I don't think it really solves the overall problem. No, I, I think you made a good point early on in that the ego and the id like increased lifespan. And so to the, to the extent that we identify with the ego, then increased life expectancy will make us happier. Yeah. But the problem we have is if the ego is an illusion, yeah. it's the illusion of happiness as opposed to being happier. So it's like anything. Once you start to analyse it, the question almost falls apart sometimes. Exactly. I mean, who am I, Hutto? You know, you're talking about my happiness. Who am I really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, I think you've, you've pinpointed that very well, Matt. Um, I've got past the idea of seeing myself as my ego and my id, um, even leaving Christianity out of it, which sort of keeps humbling you all the way along. Yep. Um, I've never seen a lot of realize, realism in that. I'm much more aware than most people of what constitutes consciousness and awareness and so on, and I don't derive happiness from this illusion. Yeah, yeah. Okie dokie. So, next question, a bit of a personal one. We're going into a therapy session now, hello. Are you happy? Yes, I, I knew you were going to ask me this one. <laughs> um, the answer is, strangely enough, I quite am. Um, I was thinking it only the, the other day as I was singing along while, while driving. I was thinking, you know, it's a strange thing. Without seeking happiness, I'm finding happiness. Okay. And I think that's, that's part of it. Uh, part of it is I've managed to lose a lot of my responsibilities. I don't have a mortgage around my neck, for example, and that actually makes life a lot happier. Yeah, so, so you're thinking of happiness there as a release of unhappiness in a sense or a release of stress so it's like peak we're talking about peace i mean that's really peace isn't it i am yeah. the um so yes there's peace satisfaction i mean in some ways i'm i can say i'm very selfish i'm now largely pursuing the things i'm interested in pursuing and the things i think i'm supposed to be pursuing. yeah and i think that is a huge ingredient when it comes yes. to yes um would you give yourself a rating out of 10? Would you Would you be going to do that? Well, I'd toss myself in a 9 at present. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so I think I'm 
happy, more happy than unhappy as well. Mm -hmm. I tend to fluctuate around a mean. And I think the temptations are all we're going to say, oh, well, I average around a five and I fluctuate between three and seven. Yeah. So I think we would all overstate that. And I'm probably going to make that mistake. I think I average around a six. Right. And I probably fluctuate between four and a eight or nine. Right. So... As you know, you know me pretty well now, and you can usually tell if I'm happy or not within about three seconds of me being in the room. And it does tend to fluctuate quite wildly around that mean. But I would say I'm better than average, which is good. Now, I'll also admit that if I was a two, I probably wouldn't admit it on here. I'd probably just pretend I was a five or something. I mean, because that's the thing. It's almost like I was thinking about this before we, we, we started recording today, and I'm thinking, if I was a two out of ten... I'd be a bit almost a bit ashamed of it, which is interesting as well, isn't it? Oh, yes, the advertising industry does yeah, that. Probably is that. Like, yeah, it, they, they push the point that you're not happy, but you should be happy. It's your fault that you're not happy, yeah. but you're using Brand X and last year's yeah. model, and if you only bought this, you'd yeah. be happy. Yeah. It's funny that I associate shame with unhappiness. I hadn't even actually got that far until I started mentioning it. You know, sometimes you have thoughts come to you as yes. you're verbalising them. I'm like, yeah, I do associate shame with being unhappiness. Fortunately, I'm not unhappy, so I don't have to be ashamed about it. But that's interesting in itself. It is. It's one of the problems of um, the Beyond Blue and things like that. They keep making the point that, you know, there are people out there who are unhappy to the point of being suicidal but will not admit it yeah. because yeah. of the shame associated with um, yeah. You're supposed to be able to handle your own problems. And, you know, I've been through long-term depression. I do have some understanding of this. Um, and Actually, sorry to interrupt, yeah. or maybe I shouldn't have interrupted, but what would you have given yourself out of 10 when you were suffering from depression? Uh, at my lowest point, I was definitely down in the twos. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd say two is probably the lowest I've been. Right. Yeah. Um, I think when you're at one, you're... Well, that's so when you're close to suicide. Yeah, that's when you're probably not around to tell the tale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing too is one of the things with depression is I've had to learn not to allow my happiness, in fact myself, to be too influenced by my circumstances and my environment. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people are very influenced by those things. And until you learn to not be, to find your happiness within yourself and within other things, mm. to manage your expectations, etc., yeah. um, you, you have a problem. Okay, so I can't remember why I asked this question now. Hold on, it must have been relevant at some stage while I was going through the chapter, but is there such a thing as a middle-class bubble? Well, there most certainly is. Um, and yes, I lived in it for, for many years. As did I. As did you, um, and as do most of the middle class. So would you like to sort of tell me what the middle class bubble is? The middle class bubble involves, if you like, a worldview in which you simply do not see and do not experience many of what many people would consider to be the realities of life. Yeah. You know, um, worries about how you're going to pay the next bill, being continually ripped off by everything from banks to loan sharks to you know, all the people who offer cheap goods which fall apart on you as mm. in terms of long-term quality. Yep. All the things you have to take up as a when you're outside the middle-class bubble yep. um, that you don't even think about when you're in the middle class. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got a rip in your shirt, you just throw it out sort of thing. Yeah. And the idea of mending a pair of socks is, is ancient history. Yeah. Um, 
balance, you know, a balanced diet. Well, I, I eat what I want and what's good for me, you know. Doesn't everybody? Well, yeah. they should do. Yeah, and yeah. All this sort of thing. And yeah. so, you know, it also includes, you know, you see people who are unwell or fat or, or miserable or whatever, and you do sort of think, well, it's their own problem. They're not looking after themselves. They're yeah. not doing it. And you've got no idea what their problems in life really yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I agree with you. I think the important thing to note is, is I don't think we're thinking that middle-class people don't have serious problems. I mean, we're both basically middle-class ourselves, and I've spent most of my life worrying about my problems. Yes. But um, I, I had a tough time in life, and I realised that my problems were really taking on a whole other level of importance, really to the point where they were basically life and death issues. Yes. And I've never really experienced that before. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the problems that I'd had in my previous life, if you like, well, a lot of them were problems I was creating in my own head. Yes. And I was basically safe either way. Yes. And sometimes I wonder whether us as human beings have a tendency to focus on our problems much more than we focus on the good things in our life, well, in our lives. And, and, and sometimes I think there might even be an evolutionarily advantage to that because if we weren't like that, we might still be living in caves. Also true. Yeah. Um, look, it's the Maslow's hierarchy of mm. needs, which mm. we've talked about before. And once you've sorted out your basic, you know, shelter, food, accommodation, yeah. you you suddenly start worrying about yourself. Well, that's right. And the, and the middle class, generally, certainly the wealthy do, and most of the middle class, they have that. They have those lower levels basically yes. looked after, don't they? That's right. Yeah. So yeah. you know, two. But there's a lot of people even in rich countries. I, I heard on the radio today that the United States has, I think, 38 million people living in poverty, which is around 10 percent of their population. Right. Australia's a very wealthy country. We'd have about 10% of our people living in poverty. Yes. And these are people that are really, they're basically trying to stay alive. Yes. You know? Yes. It's hard to be happy when you're, you know, when you're worried about living or dying. Yes. I, I, I had an interesting experience thanks to COVID-19 where I suddenly didn't have a roof over my head for a period of time. Yeah. And it was... Um, that was a different experience of life. And yeah. I still maintained happiness in that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it gave me a totally different viewpoint on other people's problems. Yeah, that's something that I haven't been through and I'm terrified of, uh, of, um, of going through that. So I admire you for, uh, you know, keeping your smile. Because I saw you throughout that time and you, did, you yeah. seemed fine. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was more worried about it than you were. <laughs> you were, but it, it was a challenge um, and it, it was an eye-opener too. Yeah. All right, so next question, Hello, is... What is your ideal monetary income? Because we spoke, uh, I think I mentioned in the, in the uh, while we're talking about the chapter, that yeah. according to studies in Australia, around about $75,000 yeah. a year is, is the amount where you don't get any, any happier each. Your, yes. your marginal utility of each extra dollar earned is yeah. essentially zero, um, zero in terms yeah. of happiness. I actually did a look at some of the studies. Um, yes, 75000 is one of the ones. And so that's what I basically want a year. So some people, for some, the higher achievers, it tends to be nearer to $95,000. Um, but I, okay, I'm concerned with achieving my goals. And since some of my goals at this stage include making some documentaries, to me, it's really not about an income level. Mm. It's about access to finance, if you like, access to the resources that enable me to keep doing things as, as I would like to do them. Yeah. Um, that's a very different thing. But I'm, I'm an exception to so many rules. That's just the way it is, Matt. All right, so I'm going to put you down as you would like $10 million a year. 
Um, well, some years. I definitely need that. Sometimes it's more, sometimes less. <laughs> All right, so have you answered the question, Hubbo, though? You haven't given me a number. Is that because you, there, there is no number or you don't there, want to give there, it? There is no number. For okay. me, there is no number. It's not about income. Well, I've got a number and it's 75 grand a year. And if Indeed. you could start giving me that every year, then, uh, you know, I'd be happy. And for you, that's true, because you just want to sit by the, the beach and fish. And <laughs> I understand that. You can buy a good fishing rod on 75 grand a year. You can, and you can buy an adequate supply of beer, and that's important. <laughs> <laughs> um, are we suffering from modern expectations of ease and pleasure? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It, the entire purpose of the advertising industry is to modify our behaviour as consumers. Um, and so they're constantly telling you, you need this, you need that, you can't be happy without this, you should be happy if you don't have this, if you haven't got this, you're falling behind expectation. I mean, we struggle with peer group, keeping up with the Joneses and stuff like that. But these days, the expectations are highly manipulated. See, I, I don't think advertising is so much the cause of that aspect of human nature as so much as it feeds on that aspect of human nature. I think it reinforces it and strengthens it so it becomes like a vicious yeah. circle. But I think we're kind of a bit like that anyway. So what I'm saying is I don't blame a lot of our unhappiness purely on the advertising industry. Like, so oh, if we could get rid of advertising, then we wouldn't, we'd all be happy. I don't think that's true. Yeah, look, I, I think you've made a good point there. The advertising industry is very good at pushing our buttons, but as you say, the buttons have to be there in the first place. Yeah. Um, so that's a very valid point. Yeah. The, um, I wrote an answer on Cora the other day relating to our ideals of beauty. Uh, someone said, you know, are they naturally derived or can they be manipulated? And I said, basically, all of our ideals of beauty are manipulated, but they're manipulated by such things as who reads the TV news, who gets the gongs at Hollywood. But they, they must be based on some basis of reality as well. So we've never had a, a an ideal of beauty being someone with three eyes and, you know, and, and you know, that sort of... Do you see what I'm saying? It's yes. not purely artificial. You, the, the, the artificialness is, well, the advertising or whatever you want to say, I think is exploiting an underlying need. Um, to some extent... Or an underlying desire. To some extent, yes. Um, at the same time, you know, blue-eyed blondes are getting quite a good push these days. Um, they're an exception. There's a certain exoticism. Um, and we're seeing more and more women trying to get paler skins just because... Caucasians have enjoyed some success. Worked for Michael Jackson. Yes, but also in the sense that, um, you know, if you look at who our news presenters are, we've got a heavy bias in who presents the news, yeah. who even sits behind the desk of, you know, prestigious offices and things like this. Mm. Um, so we look around at who's doing well, who's on the arm of the rich man, and we modify our ideas of beauty for that. And, you know, I look at Rihanna and say, you know, that's, that's a beautiful lady. At least she's kind of fighting back a bit, but yeah. only a bit because she's lightened her skin a lot too. All right, okay. Okay, so you think we are suffering from, uh, from that, okay. Um, what is the secret to maximising your happiness in life, hello? Ah. Uh, and I know the answer to this one. Okay, that's good. Um, so you may not get a mark if it doesn't uh, coincide with my answer. The first thing is... Stop seeking happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of doing other things, enjoying yep. success or whatever. A lot of the people who find happiness achieve it through community. They achieve a certain status, appreciation, 
people who go and do um, you know Doctors Without Borders etc. Yeah. Find happiness Serv- in the midst happiness of happiness and service. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's one of the things. Yeah. Um, now at the same time, I think Buddha hit on an important secret of of happiness. Um, he showed various ways that you can disconnect from it and and in so doing find it. Um, and look, I, I have taken a point these days of sniffing the roses as I go by um, and learning to appreciate the good things in life. Yeah. Particularly when circumstances turn against you, that's a very good thing. The old idea of, you know, count your blessings one by one Actually, that's, I'm not into positive thinking most of the time. I'm against negative thinking. But things like count your blessings really do work. Yeah, appreciating the good things in your life. Yeah. That's not positive thinking. That's just taking the time to balance our natural, well, yeah, certainly natural for me to think about the things we don't have. Yeah. But, and there's so many things that I do have. And you know what? I barely think about them. Right. And that's, that's the problem, taking things for granted. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the one too. So, and, you know, the bottom line is... Love yourself, love your neighbour, love God, but love yourself. Yeah. And when people learn to love themselves, a lot of other things fall into place and you find a measure of happiness because, for, look, how happy can you be if you're not happy with yourself? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, as I mentioned during the, the podcast, I read a book about, called The Pursuit of Happiness about 30 years ago. And Indeed. a few of my friends gave me a hard time about it. But, but it wasn't actually a book about, it wasn't a self-help book. It was no. a book about the science of happiness yeah. and, and what we found that, you know, what yes. makes people happy. What, and I'm interested in that. Yes. And basically, from memory, because I haven't read it for 30 years, but the, the essential conclusion was the secret to maximising your happiness throughout your life is to become the tiny, tiny, tiniest little bit happier every day. Ah. And as long as that curve is moving upwards, yes. then you have maximised your happiness. Yes. So if you think of the example of a child star yep. who has amazing happiness at the age of 15 or something and then yep. the rest of their life is downhill, that person usually ends up you know, less happy yes. than the person who slowly, slowly, slowly gets better every day. Yes. Now, it's essentially impossible to achieve in the real world because you're going to have your good days and your bad days. But um, the best way to do it, I imagine, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking on my feet here a little bit, is just keep building on the put, keep putting the building blocks in place. You don't have to you don't have to run the marathon tomorrow. You just have to put the next step in place. Yes. And you'll actually find you probably maximised your happiness if you yep. continue to do it over the course of your lifetime. I saw an interesting one the other day on the wall of Hungry Jack Store. It said, "Happiness is having a scratch for every itch." <laughs> So that, that, that implies to me that satisfying your needs as they come up. In a sense. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure where that ties in with Buddhism. I, I think a Buddhist would, would indeed scratch themselves, but would simply notice Nietzsche as being an interesting phenomenon in itself. Yeah, I think, a, I think a meditation practice, and I'm no expert on meditation, but I think they try to not scratch itches yes. and things like that. And they just stay in the moment. They stay in the moment. Yeah. And allegedly... You get to the, you, you realise that the itch doesn't really bother you. Yes. So there's, right. so, so there's no yeah. point in scratching it. So anyway, it, it's very interesting how we can look at these so many different views of happiness. Now, I tend to put a lot of emphasis on things like hopes and dreams. Um, because in my experience, someone who's got hopes and dreams which are alive, that can take them through hell. Yeah. Um, 
and you don't have to worry about people suffering from depression or suicide, etc., if they've got a hope and a dream that is real for them. Mm. And this is also one of the places where I say religion does have a role to play. Yeah. Um, but whether or not you exactly say that's happiness, I don't mm. know. But people without hopes and dreams, happiness, I think, becomes a very shallow thing. Mm. Yeah, we can take Soma and, you know, that sort of thing, and take your serotonin supplements and avoid depression. Uh, I don't think it's the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. Well, just make yourself a tiny little bit happier. Yeah, just make yourself a tiny little bit better tomorrow, Hutto. And then do it again the next day and the next day. Look, I like that one. I think trends are hugely important. Yeah. If you actually think that today I got a little bit closer to my goal, my dream, then I think you'll be happy. Well, I think you did because I think what you did was maximise your sleep. Yeah. And uh, maybe that was something that uh, you, know, you need to make you happy. It's yeah. certainly something I need to make me happy. If I haven't <laughs> had enough sleep, I'm grumpy. Well, yes, yes, indeed. Uh, I'll, I'll pay testament to that. <laughs> Alrighty. So now that we've given the secret to happiness, Hutto, we'll just ask a few more questions. Um, how can we reconcile the fact that happiness is caused by internal biochemistry with the fact that some external events appear to make us happy, at least for a short while? Well, this, of course, is a very easy one because the external events trigger a release of the biochemistry. Oh, God. You see, that's why I had to rename this to possibly unanswerable questions. You know, exactly. that's, not, that's not answerable, is it? <laughs> not unanswerable. Okay, I'll move on to the next one. Disappointed in that, uh, e- ease of that question. That. <laughs> so instead of having a French Revolution, because we, we sort of um, yes. realised that it didn't make the French any happier because it didn't change their biochemistry, should we have just given all the French present peasants Prozac? We absolutely should. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, I, and kept the king. I, look, I, I should have... I should have amended my answer. It's bread, circuses, and process. <laughs> <laughs> or, or soma, or, or whatever you've got, yeah. you know. And, yeah, let them smoke pot, and they'll be happy. Um, well, another way to put the question, if the French peasants were all on Prozac, would there, would there have been a French Revolution? Uh, look, I think if you'd actually given them a little bit of bread and cake, quite possibly not. Yeah, but we're talking about Prozac, aren't we? We're not talking about bread and cake. Well, yeah, okay. But what I'm saying is, if you had removed a major source of unhappiness and given them a false degree of contentment, chemically induced, yeah. it would probably have worked quite well. It probably would have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, admittedly, Prozac didn't exist back then, so that might have been a Well, that, that was a... But a booze minor, and things did. A minor handicap, but, you know, probably more ca- caffeine would have been a good start. <laughs> okay, second last question, Hutto. Would you like to live in Huxley's Brave New World? And I'll actually uh, ask you to perhaps give us a bit of a rundown on, on, on the plot of Huxley's Brave New World, given that I haven't read it myself. Ah, okay. Um, oh. Just, just briefly, you know. Just... Yeah, look, Huxley's Brave New World is a brilliant book. Um, it's denoted as being an anti-utopia. But what he really does is he takes the... Socialist ideas, which were prevalent in the 1920s and 30s, and says, well, if you extend these ideas, if you're working towards your future vision of where these will take us, it takes us to somewhere like this. Mm. This is actually a good thing. Mm. Um, And in it, for example, there is a considerable emphasis on pleasure as being happiness, yeah. um, which is where Soma comes in, that people are in a large... Oh, my understanding was that the main part of the book 
was the actual biochemistry, the soma thing? Are you saying that wasn't actually the theme oh, of the book? No, no, oh, no, I didn't understand that. I really thought it was about a society where everyone takes this pill and everyone's really happy. Right. And then it basically, but then it ends up being a dystopian vision. Right. So that was really, I suppose, the, the, the point of the question in a sense. Right, okay. Well, yeah. no, it's not like that. Now, again, there is a kind of free sex for all is available, etc. But it's a structured society um, where people are actually bred for their positions. Yeah. Um, and it was taking the advanced thinking of the 19... I think it was written in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, it was taking their best idea at that stage of what humanity and the society itself was about. So it got a chunk of Marxism in there as well. Yeah. Um, and trying to come up with, you know, is, is this what leads to a happy, balanced, stable, that word we're going to talk more about at some stage, stable society, etc. Now, one of the things Huxley makes clear is that whenever you introduce any society like this, there are going to be outsiders. There are going to be people who don't fit for yeah. whatever reasons. And you can say it's their fault or you can say it's society's fault or whatever, but they're not going to be happy in this society. Right. You can also argue that it is these exceptions who in some ways are finding much more meaning in life. You've got the sheep or the cattle, if you like, who are just running along, leading life in the middle where there's reasonably green grass and they eat it and chew mm. and take their soma or whatever it may be and have sex. And you know, But nobody's really achieving anything. These are not the Isaac Newtons. Yeah, um, yeah. You want your... It's your outliers who so much of the time produce advance, revolution, dissatisfaction, Nietzsche, you know, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. Um, my answer to the question is I would be very unhappy in Brave New World for two reasons. One is I would be an outsider, mm. and the other is they think they've solved so many of the problems, and I'm a problem solver. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, solving problems makes you happy. It does. And yeah. part of what I'm saying too is I would be the lone voice in the wilderness saying, you think you're happy, but you're not. Yeah. This society sucks. Yeah. Um, I no think I'd be really happy in that society, had I? Take a little so. pill every day and run off and have sex. Well, you, you can fish <laughs> in the stream and, you know, have your beer and have some sex. <laughs> and if you go out to me and said, you're not happy, I'd say, oh, come on, hello. I'm loving it. Exactly so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so in a sense, Huxley was trying to point out that the end goal of these ideological systems that we're all trying to pursue yeah. may not really be a utopian anyway, but a dystopian. Exactly. In fact, Huxley was raising the really interesting point of is even trying to achieve a utopia a bad idea? Um, and yeah, he did right. it without saying Without it, saying it. But leaving yeah. you to read I mean, it. you could actually read that novel and go, wow, what a great world. But, to, but most people didn't. They Correct. read it and get, hang on, there's, there's something really disturbing about this. Correct. And yeah. the, look, it's one of the reasons it's still so much read today is because it continues to be so relevant today. Mm. It's a really, really... That actually sounds more interesting than I even thought. I didn't realise it was about what you just said it was about. Right. So probably worthwhile that I asked the question, hello. Indeed. I was really saying if we're all on anti you know, a high dose of antidepressants, which yeah, is what yeah. I really thought the book was about. Right. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, you know, they were trying to make... It was an outline of a supposedly happy society, so it's yeah. totally relevant. Yeah. Right? So that, that so yeah. So the the soma was one aspect of this yes. sort of perfect in inverted commas society. Exactly. Okay. My last question for today is: Well, you're a Christian, so I think I know what your answer might be. But was the Buddha correct? 
What's the Buddha correct? Okay, I don't like the this idea that there's right and wrong and correct and truth and the one truth and this one. Okay, so can I take from that that you think that there's more than one path to happiness? Yes, absolutely. What I would say is the Buddha identified an important truth about happiness and life. Do you believe he identified a path to happiness? Yes, I think he also identified a a method and a path, if you like. I think it has considerable validity. It needs to be seriously considered in all philosophical, religious and practical approaches to how we live our lives. I think your objection, for want of a better word, to Buddhism would be that you don't consider happiness to be all that important. Exactly exactly right. (laughs) Yeah, so it makes sense. It's like, you know, if I've shown you how to run a marathon in under two hours and you've got, it's it's guaranteed, but you have no interest in doing that, then you're not going to do it. Exactly. At the same time, for those who want to, you know, that... Now, you must also remember that what Buddha started out trying to do was solve the problem of unhappiness, despair and stuff like that. He was... You know, he, the whole ugliness of life, and he did indeed find an answer to that. Well, that's right, but I, I think that's, I think that's what he started off trying yes. to do. But I think he, I think he found happiness was a byproduct of the a bit like you. That's yes. where he's consistent with you in a sense, yes. because he, once he went down the path, because he was trying to escape suffering. And once he went down, he was like, holy shit, this is awesome. This is way more awesome than I thought it was going to be. That's Correct. what I think might have happened. Correct. And yeah. now, a couple of things there. Um, one is, I think what he found is, is very valid and, in a sense, inspired. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's great. Now, you have to remember that most Buddhists don't find that. They don't go as far as the Buddhists. Yeah, it's, um, it's we, not an easy path. Yeah, in the same way as you know, most Christians don't get crucified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that the goal of Christianity? <laughs> well, strangely enough, Metaphorically speaking, more perhaps. so than might be generally understood. Not literally, though, no, I don't think. Thing. I don't think it's your goal to get nailed to a cross, is it? No, but <laughs> there, you know, there is the argument that if you're not suffering for righteousness state, you're not actually walking in the shoes of the fisherman. Um, So, interesting. Look, I I, I think Buddha is to be revered, if you like, certainly admired, certainly to be seriously considered, and uh, he found an important and perhaps enlightened truth, yes. Um, Is that the end of the the story? Is that what we should all be doing? No, I don't think it's that simple. Okay, no, I, I think it's a good answer, actually. Um, well, that's it. So I've asked all my questions and you've answered them all. Not, not exactly correctly in most cases. I told you that. I, you did pretty well. Even I, I can't be correct. I don't remember what you got. You know what? I'm going to mix it up. There was 14 questions. Hello, what would you give yourself for your performance today? Oh, no. <laughs> I hate these You weren't expecting that, were you? I was not. No. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Or, or in a job interview when they say, oh, what, what are your weaknesses? Oh, yeah, I like to <laughs> Oh, I just care too much. <laughs> yes, that, that's right, yeah. Um, uh, I tend to blame myself too much. Yeah. Um, I blew a job interview with that answer once. It was, um, I blame myself too much. Yes. It's a, it's a tough, it's a nasty question. Oh, it, it is, and such an obvious one. I included in all my interviews when I interview staff. <laughs> <laughs> just for the sheer fun of it. Oh, absolutely. Like, it had no relevance on whether you hired them or not. <laughs> Um, 
dear. Uh, okay, well, of course, given my high expectations, I've underperformed, so I'd say I'm probably a seven. But in truth, I think probably more like a nine or ten. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll accept that. So that's what you got. Well done. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. Uh, sorry, do I get an increase? Oh, I... uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to increase your wage by 5,000%. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I was afraid that was coming. <laughs> All right. Okay, so that's it for today. And um, next, next time's our last chapter. And then the one after that, we're going to actually do a review of the book. We so are. we've only got two more podcasts to go on this book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this will be a cause for major celebration. Yeah. So I will see you on the flip-flop. On the flip-flop. <laughs> Yay!